The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Lose the Shoulder Pads edition. It's Wednesday, March 8th, 2017. On today's show, 1984, the novel by George Orwell is an undisputed masterpiece of world literature and a staple of high school syllabi. And now it's also a number one bestseller on Amazon. We discuss it as a great English novel, but also its resurrection as a kind of guidebook to the age of alternative facts. And then Feud, Betty and Joan, is the new FX limited series that tells the story of the love-hate rivalry between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. It stars Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange. And finally, sleep is a universal feature of human and animal life. Why is this creaturely fact becoming what food was arguably to the previous couple of decades, a nexus of necessity, pleasure, identity, and dread? Joining me today is Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. I should add you're the editor of Slate. And um, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Are we all well-slept, well-rested? Ha, ha, ha. We'll see when we get to the sleep segment, won't we? <laughs> I suppose we will. Um, okay, before we dig in, Julia, what uh, what business do we have? Two pieces. First, we are doing a live show in Washington, D.C. on April 19th. So please go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. We're eager and excited to do our first performance ever in our nation's capital. We didn't want to go there for the whole Obama presidency, but now we're ready. Uh, second, for Slate Plus this week, we will be talking about reading books versus listening to them and when we personally count whether we've read a book. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get access to that segment, other weekly segments, an ad-free version of the Slate podcast feed, and the chance to support Slate in the journalism we do at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, let's dig in. Thanks, Julia. 1984, the novel by George Orwell, is considered pretty much without qualification one of the greatest and most enduring works of English literature. Um, It's also as close to universally read as such a book can be. And even more, it has a kind of universal intellectual currency among even those who haven't read it, a group that I'm embarrassed to say included me until this past week. Whenever someone tells a cynical and public lie, the name Orwell or any one of the many coinages from the book, the most obvious being Big Brother or Newspeak, is introduced into the conversation. It is also, I hasten to add, and was very delighted to discover a very moving love story, a book as devoted to the creaturely and human truths that Big Brother and thought policing are intended to stamp out forever. A book not only against bureaucratic tyranny and brainwashing, but also in favor of love, friendship, memory, intimacy, pleasure, sexual pleasure, and many other things, which is why it's not only a topically relevant novel long past its own era, it was published in 1949, but among the greatest novels ever written. That is my judgment. Dana Stevens, do you agree with it? Actually, Dana, before you jump in and respond, let me just quickly give a brief overview of the plot of the book to orient listeners. So our hero is Winston, not explicitly named for Churchill, but that's what I thought of. I think you're, as I think we're intended, um, who works in the Ministry of Truth, is part of the party which rules this very, very bleak vision of a Britain called Oceania, where uh, individuals have no autonomy or privacy. Your apartment is outfitted with a telescreen where you are observed at all times. You're not allowed to spend any time on your own. Otherwise, you might be 
treated with suspicion. Anybody who's perceived as being disloyal at all to the party is accused of thought crime and then disappeared, essentially. Um, And the party engages in all kinds of manipulation of facts and history. And in fact, Winston's job in the Ministry of Truth is to amend all records of the past to make them accord with whatever those in political power currently want to be seen to be true. And we sort of meet him as he's having glimmers of dissatisfaction and confusion about the nature of the world he finds himself in and whether it has ever been thus, and follow him as he begins to explore more radical forms of dissent and their consequences. Wait, let me go back to one thing you said at the beginning, though. You've never read this? You were never assigned it in high school or freshman year in college or anything? I thought this was one of the, along with Hamlet, was one of the most universal high school literature assignments. Dana, I love you, but you're expressing a very disordered thought pattern. You, <laughs> you are assuming that because it was assigned to me in high school, I would have read it. <laughs> Those two things have a very powerful inverse correlation. Uh, I was a depressed fuck up in high school. If it was on the syllabus, I avoided it like herpes. Uh, I um, I haven't read it. Um, there's a slightly longer answer, which we can get into later, but now I, I have um, and feel profound gratitude. I mean, Orwell is one of my favorite writers, but we can get into how that can be true and not, uh, and be someone who hadn't read 1984. But I want to hear first what, what your history with the novel is and what re- reading it or rereading it was like this time. Yeah. Well, I mean, my history was that I was assigned it in high school and I did read it. I believe it may have actually been in 1984. It's possible. I was in high school in 1984. And and I definitely remember seeing the movie, which I believe was released in 1984, possibly assigned by my school, possibly just because I had read the book, the the version with John Hurt as Winston and uh, and Richard Burton as, as O'Brien. Um, having had all these years in between, and maybe because, as you said, 1984 has become kind of part of a, a, a general cultural lexicon by which we refer to, you know, double speak and political lies and so forth. I had expected that while its political force, its force as an as an instrument of political thought would be sort of untarnished, that the characters would seem like these allegorical, you know, like ideas clad in bodies so that they could represent something. And as you said in your introduction, Steve, so rightly, this book really is just the opposite of that. It's so full of concrete evocation of sensory and sometimes sensual experience. And the two main characters who, who whose love story is the body of the novel, Winston and Julia, are real characters. They don't represent ideas in the least, even though there is a lot of talk about ideas. And in fact, there's a long kind of didactic tract in the middle of the book, which is this this book that Winston reads. It's a book within a book, sort of. And that's the place where sort of the ideas of 1984 are laid out in the most direct way. But that's at such a distance from the physical world that the characters inhabit that 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 didactic insert, I thought, worked perfectly. It reminded me a little bit the relationship of that tract to the the rest of the fiction to uh, the Brothers Karamazov and the long section called um, the Grand Inquisitor Mm. or something in the middle of it that's sort of the ideas part that the rest of the book could be looked at as a kind of both a live reenactment of and a kind of deconstruction of. In other words, the ideas sort of fall apart when 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 real life comes in. And that happens in this book as well. Is that too long of an answer? Anyway, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It blew me away. And also, we'll get into this, I'm sure, but the degree to which it is 
uh, suitable for our times and that its political analysis has currency right right now in the early days of the Trump administration was amazing to me. I thought it would be this kind of general that essentially the 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 form of big think, you know, of big totalitarian thought processes that it was depicting would be dated and it would all feel like it was a critique of Stalinism and a critique of totalitarianism in mid 20th century and that we would sort of have to do some mental work to make that apply now. But there are some passages that I've I've earmarked that I want to read out later that really feel like they could be – somebody could be saying them right now inside of Trump's inner sanctum. Steve Bannon could be brandishing mm. some of this doublespeak mm. right now as we single speak. Um, absolutely right. Um, Julia, Dan and I agree that the book hasn't dated at all and that it holds up completely as a work of fiction. Uh, and what did you think? I had also never read it, despite being a, an eager, nose-twitching rabbit in high school who read everything that was assigned to me. Somehow it was never assigned to me in either high school or college throughout my education. Uh, and I really loved it. I agree with Dana. I was surprised by how specific and human and subtle it was. I was also surprised by how politically pertinent some of its uh, observations seemed to be. I also, you know, that tract in the middle is basically unreadable and sort of terrible. I mean, it's interesting and provocative, but it's kind of like a big uh, lead pipe in the middle of the book. But the book, I think that's intentional. I think that's part of what the book is suggesting, uh, that that revolution is doomed to fail. Because where rebellion and the impulse towards independence. Those are both more passionate and pertinent and more fragile. And, you know, as he's reading the tract, I mean, the, the, the way that we as the recipients of 1984 get this abstract political tract about what's so fucked up about the world of 1984, um, Winston is reading it to his beloved, Julia, whose rebellion is only motivated by her sexual drive and not her intellectual one. Uh, which we can get to in a moment. I would not say this book is perfect in many respects, uh, but she falls asleep. Like the book acknowledges that these ideas are both fascinating and boring at the same time. Well, the the, the idea of having him read the tract in bed with Julia is so brilliant because, as you say, it kind of embeds you know all of this this didactic thought in this very concrete experience, and it allows you to experience each of their experiences of it. Right? I mean, Winston is reading it in this kind of state of breathless excitement because all these ideas that he's been murkily trying to put together his whole life in this world where facts are essentially unavailable to him are finally beginning to cohere into a into a a worldview. And then, as you say, Julia is just happy to be lying next to her lover in bed, snoozing off as he reads these boring words to her. We can get to whether I think I don't think that Julia is necessarily a sexist construct. But something that I kept thinking of in the Winston-Julia relationship was that he was a Gen Xer and she was a millennial, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and that he had this sort of like grumpy I don't know. He had he had sort of a grumpy, cynical relationship to the state, whereas she regards the state with a sort of this this just brash disdain. It's it's a very different way of rebelling that they each have. I mean, it's there's a special irony to th- knowing this book at second hand uh, via its ideas, because the force of the book comes completely from how repudiated ideas are by the concrete facts of human reality. And, you know, Orwell was a journalist, and that's the Orwell that I know and venerate, the one who wrote Homage to Catalonia and wrote to Wigan Pier. And, and those books are about confronting the facts of life and social life as they are without wincing and with a kind of famously window pane clarity to one's prose. Uh, and um, And what he did is he transferred to his 
novel writing, that same appreciation for the pungency and brute concreteness of lived experience, uh, and then embedded that within a society trying to conform to a single commanding idea. Um, And so the book then comes out in favor principally of his love for Julia and her love for him, which is incredibly moving and tragic. But it also, I made a list that comes out in favor of, you know, all of these things that officialdom and official and public and official life can't finally uh, overtake. Memory, aloneness is a huge part of the book. The right to be alone is this thing that's you know, utterly deprived of you in a totalitarian society. Right. Own life, um, they call it, right? That's the new speak word. Own life is forbidden. And the, suspi- and the suspicion that being alone arouses because in being alone, uh, uh, people consult their conscience in a way that's uh, profoundly dangerous to, to, to totalitarian regime. Uh, obviously, intimacy, which is the love affair with Julia, um, uh, the empirical disposition, obviously a huge part of the book, is simply, you know, Orwell... Orwell himself and everything he wrote puts it in your head all the time that you have an almost natural disposition to try to understand and tell the truth. And there's something extrinsic uh, and artificial and horrible about suppressing that. So obviously two plus two equals five is one of the hurdles to breaking a human being's uh, spirit. But that just that bruteness and concreteness of, of creaturely comfort, remembering what it was like to be with your mother, um, historical continuity, the sense that if you... Um, put something down on paper, a profoundly moving part of the book early on that I was unfamiliar with completely from my secondhand knowledge is just his attempt to keep a diary, which is uh, illegal and punishable by death. Um, the sense that he may form a even provisional con- continuity or bridge across time to the future, um, his sense that he probably won't, but it, it matters to try even under a pain of death. Um, and then finally, ex- eccentricity, the kind of ultimate right to be your individual self, regardless of uh, 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 that self's uh, uh, ability or power of conforming to what officialdom wants from you. It's it's because those things are so vivid and so real and that he writes as a, as a, as an evocative novelist and fiction writer that the imposition of um, Procrustean, you know, and, and kind of sadistic and anti-human really uh, uh, ideas upon that makes the book uh Enduring, right? Like, even if we didn't have Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon, um, uh, the book is just so totally a success and so totally moving, with the exception that I think Julia is about to lodge against it, which I agree with. Well, yeah. I mean, and I'm not, I do not believe that all works must be judged by, like, to, to point out that this book has a gender perspective appropriate to its moment is not to say this book is worthless or to be, t- to be memory hold or, you know, t- to not be deeply revered for all of the things that are remarkable and amazing about it. But it is striking to read it. And it was striking to me to read it just a few months after I finally read The Handmaid's Tale, which, you know, in my view is a is a equally fascinating dystopian vision, if one that's been um, less influential in how we all talk about the world and has not yet, to my knowledge, spawned uh, a reality TV show in its image, unless you count The Bachelor, I guess. Um, but Women are not deeply respected by this book, in my view. I think you, I think Julia is rendered with specificity. She's not a cardboard cutout, um, but women in general are treated as um, sort of grotesque, thoughtless figures throughout the book. 
Well, there really are only two women who kind of appear in the flesh. I guess Winston's mother appears in memories and dreams. But the only women that we really see are Julia and the proletarian laundress who's, who is always hanging up laundry and singing outside of their secret hideout. And Parson's wife, the neighbor down That's the hall. True. Yeah, Parson's wife. Yeah. Um, and there's a couple women described in crowd scenes as bloating and grasping. There's There's Winston's brief hope that the proletarians might overthrow the regime because of their sheer number. Uh, and he hears a hue and cry on the street and thinks perhaps it's finally the uprising he's been waiting for, but it's just a bunch of dumb clucking proletarian women fighting over new saucepans and then squawking when uh, the saucepans run out and saucepan scarcity is once again visited upon them. But I also think, I mean, just to, to you could, I guess, call this an essentialization or something and, and critique this as a view of woman, too. But I think, and I had this bookmark to read, actually, the, the description that he has of his mother during one of the long, really beautiful segments of him trying to recall his lost childhood, which has been so thoroughly submerged by the principles of Ingsoc, English socialism, that he he's not even sure these memories are real. But there's a description of his imagining of the interiority of his mother, that's really one of the most human moments in the book. Let me try to find it. It's at a moment that he's at the hideout with Julia, and uh, and he has a dream about his mother, wakes up and tells Julia about it. And with her typical sensitivity, she goes back to sleep after briefly observing, I expect you were a beastly little swine in those days. All children were swine. Um, But then here's Winston's thoughts afterwards about his mother. From her breathing, this is Julia's, It was evident that she was going off to sleep again. He would have liked to continue talking about his mother. He did not suppose from what he could remember of her that she had been an unusual woman, still less an intelligent one. And yet she had possessed a kind of nobility, a kind of purity, simply because the standards that she obeyed were private ones. Her feelings were her own and could not be altered from outside. It would not have occurred to her that an action which is ineffectual thereby becomes meaningless. If you loved someone, you loved him, and if you had nothing else to give, you still gave him love. When the last of the chocolate was gone, his mother had clasped the child in her arms. It was no use. It changed nothing. It did not produce more chocolate. It did not avert the child's death or her own, but it seemed natural to her to do it. It goes on, but that was one of the many parts of the book where I was just reduced to a pulp and and thought, how could could this book have been remembered or be popularly thought of as some sort of, um, you know, ideas clad in flesh, Mm -hmm. sort of a a novel of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I suspect the cliff notes are more widely read than the book itself in some in some instances, at least. But another thing I'd like to bring up, um, Julia, is just it's, and to my mind, it's utter success as a genre novel of all things. That his talent for suspense and uh, cliffhanger is equivalent to any genre novel that, uh, novelist that I can think of. It's it's a, it's a to my mind, it's a complete success as a work of uh, craft. That there are, um, we can get into it a little more. I want to hear you out on this, but to to my mind, both the two hideous climax slash anticlimaxes of the of the novel, the renunciations that that essentially he makes, are they're rendered perfectly. I mean, this is really an extraordinary. They're just the 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 scenes of torment culminating in Room One Hundred One. I mean it. It, 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 I I can't think of a writer of popular fiction who wouldn't learn something from and profoundly envy Orwell's ability uh, to evoke a vivid experience in his reader. Oh, I I agree completely. I, the the also I was surprised by it. Like you don't anticipate being surprised by the book, but the you encounter many characters and their twists and turns of their actual relationship to the party and double think and everything else. Um, 
they, they startle you. Like and you, there are a lot of chapters that end in cliffhanging sentences among the best of them. Like you cannot not read, start the next yeah, chapter. You don't, you don't sense the shape of the book. You don't know what Winston's fate will be. You don't know what the fate of Big Brother will be. Like the book holds open possibilities throughout it that d- despite the bleak, bleak perspective of the world that's envisaged, Winston is rendered so specifically and so um, hopefully that you can't help but think maybe he's the guy who's going to, you know, bring it all to a crashing end, at least through a bunch of the book. Not not all the way to the finish, alas. I was also struck, though, by just how much of the language in this book I've heard before. And, you know, you've heard double think. Uh, Big Brother, Double Speak, you know, the, there's like the big terms that you know are from 1984 that you would have been able to pick off of the list. But one that struck me is one that we use at Slate and that people use on the internet, which is Memory Hole, um, which is the, you know, Winston's job at the Ministry of Truth is to amend records of the past to keep them up to date with whatever the present's idea of the past is. Um, And when some evidence of the change or of the past emerges, you tuck it in this hole in the wall and then it vanishes forever and is burnt to cinders. And um, memory holing is just like a, I don't know, it's the term we use at Slate for our principle of not deleting or changing anything on the site without noting that we've deleted or changed something. And of course, the rise of digital media gives the ability to create a fungible past or for the past to disappear in certain ways that weren't even relevant when this book was written. Um, And so that was fascinating. And then the other thing is just the relationship of the government to the truth is at the core of this book and just feels so pertinent at a moment when our president is lobbying just insane birther-esque accusations at our previous president for no reason other than to create a diversionary tactic. I mean, it just, it, 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 it takes to a terrifying endpoint what some of the practices and behavior we're seeing in the White House now could result in. Um, and if they were more competent, <laughs> competent yeah, enough I mean, to that mount a big like totalitarian that state. That sounds like histrionic and paranoiac. Like I, no. I recognize that that's, that may seem overheated, but you know, and I don't think, the, I, I agree, I don't think the White House is headed for this exact future, but the, the danger of the relationship between the powerful and the truth is, mm-hmm. the, is the, to me, the most compelling and fascinating intellectual thread in this book, uh, and one that could not be more urgently relevant. Right. And, and let me say quickly why I don't think it's overheated or hysterical or par- par- paranoid, is the book and and at this moment, you're quite sure you're hearing Orwell himself speak, but the book is quite clear and and states at least once or twice explicitly that so long as you are free to say that two plus two equals four, all else follows. And the sense is that the entire totalitarian irreality is built upon the uh, reiteration to the point of pseudo-truth that two plus two equals five, huge part of the book. Now, we don't have the entire apparatus built around it, but we have people standing in front of a camera every day, including the president himself, saying two plus two equals five, and the lies are that crude. So them getting away with two plus two equals five means that the uh, tip of the camel's nose is in the tent, and we're going to end up sleeping with it 
they are starting with two plus two equals five, a person who's willing to say every single day and virtually every time they open their mouth, two plus two equals five in the hope of wearing you down. I mean, they don't expect to get you to believe it precisely. I mean, they speak, they address some of it to true believers, which is itself terrifying, but almost more terrifying is they're trying to get people to be so cynical about public life that they don't care whether officialdom says two plus two equals four or five. That is the beginning of something really horrifying and and really genuinely new. It's not a, it's not hysteria that has made this book number one on Amazon. So this is something that that goes on from early in the book. When when Winston, as you observe, Steve, there's this this pivotal moment near the beginning where he buys an old blank book and does this you know extremely illegal thing of of hiding from the telescreen that monitors his every movement in his apartment and starting to write in his journal. And of course, that in itself is immensely moving. The idea that sitting down and trying to write your own memories in this in this totalitarian world is in itself a revolutionary act, right? And uh, and here's one of the key sentences he writes. And this is this is quite early in the book. I understand how. I do not understand why. So he's trying to figure out, you know, what is the purpose of this this vast governing technology that controls our every movement? And then when he's reading the text in bed with Julia, that that long didactic text, this is the point where he stops reading and Julia wakes up and they begin a conversation. Okay, so so the voice I'm about to start here is not Winston, but the group authors of this book that O'Brien has given him. Here we reach the central secret. As we have seen, the mystique of the party, and above all of the inner party, depends upon doublethink. But deeper than this lies the original motive, the never-questioned instinct that first led to the seizure of power and brought doublethink, the thought police, continuous warfare, and all the other necessary paraphernalia into existence afterwards. This motive really consists... Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then this is what I mean about the cliffhanger. After that ellipsis, Julia wakes up, and they have a conversation, and he never picks up the book at that place again, right? So we're left wondering still, why? Why is the, is the party doing all this? And it isn't until much, much later, near the end of the book, after Winston and Julia have been caught and separated, he's in the Ministry of Love, a.k.a. the sort of torture palace of the of the administration. And, uh, and he gets into a conversation with O'Brien, who has, in a strange way, created kind of a Stockholm Syndrome situation with Winston, right, where he's his tormentor and his torturer, but also seems to be his only confidant and his only friend. And uh, and O'Brien finally kind of opens up about the why behind the how. The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power. Not wealth or luxury or long life or happiness, only power, pure power. What pure power means you will understand presently. We are different from all the other oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives. They pretended, perhaps they even believed, that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just round the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means, it is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now do you begin to understand me? And to me, that was just, that was one of the most chilling 
parts of the whole book because it's something I, f- I feel like I ask every day when I open the newspaper now and see the headlines about the bizarrely cruel. Uh, the latest one is separating mothers and children at the border so that you know families will stop trying to emigrate over the southern border. I mean, just these these truly just acts of sheer cruel, wanton cruelty. And mm-hmm. the question why just seems to come up over and over again. And something about the kind of the cynicism of that passage that I just read from O'Brien and the idea that there's not even a driving ideology behind this anymore. Just it seemed extremely relevant and extremely chilling about our present situation. Can mm-hmm. I ask one one last question, Steve, as just the Orwell buff among us? Which is why why write this book in 1949? Like what was what was Orwell thinking about or doing that that made this the pertinent dystopia to produce then? Uh, I mean, it's the it's the great opus of his life, and he's approaching the end of his life. Um, I'm not sure whether he knew that as he was writing this, but he might have strongly suspected it. Um, and I think it's because he he had gone to f- his life as a writer as an important writer really spans from the Spanish Civil War to the very beginnings of the Cold War, which is to say that as a relatively young man, he put his own life very much on the line to go fight fascism in its first important incarnation, which was General Franco's attempt to take over Spain. And while in Spain, he saw not only the face of fascism, and this absolutely uh, uh, formulated his uh, political allegiances going forward. He saw the face of Bolshevism because he fought with the anarchists, uh, but he saw what the Russians were up to in Spain, and he saw that they were profoundly evil and that communist tyranny was every bit as bad as fascism. And And one of the ways in which he saw that is that he saw that the Russians were perfectly happy to have the anarchists lose to Franco. Um, rather than have the anarchists win or some form of social justice leftism win that didn't have an allegiance to Moscow. And so he saw that the real aims of Bolshevik Moscow were uh, global and universal tyranny and not justice. And he saw it close up uh, and he saw how profoundly undermining they were of the effort against fascism. And he said, these are two faces of the same thing. So he wrote in favor of socialism uh, he himself said this over and over again um, as as the one possible rational fate of mankind, but absolutely against the bureaucratic and globalist tyranny of communism. Secondly, the war is over. Stalin is still in place. He's been every bit as murderous as Hitler. The mask is completely off of uh, the nature of Stalinism. And yet there's still a large part of the left and the English left uh, that's very vulnerable to the charms of of, uh, Soviet power as it might create a kind of universal or global leftism and a counterweight to the Americans. And going forward, he sees that as the principal danger. And there's a second strain which I'd like to learn more about, which is... um, in general, in the post-war year, the war economy became a permanent economy. And that is a large feature of this book, the idea of continuous war as a means of you know, uh, consuming the surplus that a affluent society produces to prevent it from being distributed fairly and then having an educated populace that overthrows the party, but, um, uh, but, um, but also as a way of inspiring uh, allegiance and social purpose in times of what otherwise would be peace. And so I think he, he saw going forward, the pr- principal danger is going to be highly specifically Stalin and the Soviets, but much more generally and much more insidiously, the tendency for bureaucratic forms of, of leadership and, and totalitarian or kind of soft totalitarian modes 
of um of cultural explanation and uh, allegiance and so um and he was right you know i mean i think that he that he kind of uh, nailed it in that regard the last thing i wanted to say and maybe this will come up in our in our slate plus because we're going to talk about listening versus reading and i happen to have listened to this mainly on audiobook this time rather than read it but the end the the, the absolute grimness and, and incredibly tragic sadness of the ending of the story of Winston and Julia's story i think is somehow undercut in this subtle way that i don't quite understand by the afterword by orwell which is a sort of um, dictionary of Newspeak, which seems, if I understand it right, to have been written in some era when Newspeak is no longer the prevailing language. There's a little bit of a sense when you read that afterward in which he breaks down, you know, category A, B, and C of the language Newspeak, that there's a world beyond Newspeak, and that there's a world beyond the world of 1984. Mm. All right. Well, um, the novel is 1984. It's by George Orwell. Uh, I think this is three thumbs up. From the panel? Yeah. Those of you who didn't read it already should go read it. And people who read it once, like me, and remembered it wrong should go back and read it again because it has such new relevance and it's just such a, a beautiful book. Yeah. Emphatically, your not high school self um, should read this book. And uh, it's. I, I just think it, it has to join the list of 10 books. No, no human life is complete not having read. That's my estimation. So shoot me. Um, come to Facebook.com and uh, slash Culture Fest. Tell us what you think of this book. Um, we'd love to hear it. All right, moving on. Feud stars Susan Sarandon as Joan Crawford and Jessica Lange as Betty Davis tells the story of how these two aging actresses forced into career twilight by age or more accurately Hollywood ageism overcome their mutual suspicion and jealousy to make the 1962 horror classic Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. The limited series on FX comes from creator and writer Ryan Murphy. It's intended to be campy, malicious, bitchy, crazy, late golden period Hollywood fun. Can't wait to ask my co-panelists if they thought it was, but first let's listen to a clip. It's magic what we do, isn't it? All right, let's cut through the bullshit. I don't like you, you don't like me. But we need this picture to work, both of us. All I ask is that you do your best work. Try. Because when you're good, Joan, goddammit, you're good. Do you really think so? Oh, Christ, you're not going to cry. Yes, I really think so. I've always thought so. Oh, one last thing. Lose the shoulder pads. I beg your pardon. And cut back on the lipstick. You're playing a recluse who hasn't seen the sun for 20 years, for Christ's sake. Dana, you're a um, Hollywood historian. I'm very curious what you made of this show. Oh, my God, that is so glamorizing what I am. I wish that I were a Hollywood historian. <laughs> but whatever tiny fragment of me that is a Hollywood historian or is trying to be really disliked this show <laughs> and has basically nothing good to say about it. Dish. Dish like Hedda Hopper. I mean, oh, actually, one of the few things I did really love was Judy Davis playing Hedda Hopper, even though the part is ridiculous and assumes all kind of things about Hedda Hopper that can't possibly have been true in relation to this movie and this story. But Judy Davis is just a goddess and she's absolutely great in that in that relatively small role of a gossip columnist. Um Oh, dear. I mean, where do, where do you start with the dishing? I mean, I think Will Paskin, Slate's TV critic, got it exactly right when she described this series as fun adjacent. <laughs> There's no reason that it shouldn't be fun, right? Watching Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lang have at each other's throats in this sort of campy catfight. But somehow the camp is so overdetermined in this show. I mean, I say this starting out as a non-Ryan Murphy fan, but 
the fact that there are no women that I can see of on the creative team here, it's co-written by a group of men. It's engineered for the most part and I think directed by Ryan Murphy. And it's about the interiority of these two aging female movie stars. And that absence, the absence of any female input into the script felt evident to me. It doesn't feel like it has any respect for or very much knowledge of film history, which is not to say that everything, you know, in a biopic about Hollywood has to be historically accurate. But just as an example, whenever there was a moment that we were to see one of the earlier appearances of Betty and and Joan, instead of actually using old footage from a, one of the many incredible movies that they made, there were these strange ersatz recreations where, for example, you saw Susan Sarandon in black and white coming down a staircase that was clearly supposed to be the staircase in All About Eve. But the fact that even those shots had to be recreated and that there couldn't be any acknowledgement of the the tension between the real past and real movies that were actually made with real actresses and these cheesy recreations that just had this this ersatzness that I couldn't get past. Ersatzness, what do you think, Julia? Uh, I have less invested in the non-ersatz version of this, and I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, the thing that I think is most interesting about it, right, is it's presented as the narrative of two aging stars who can't get the work they want anymore, which is not a dynamic that has necessarily left us trying to create a project despite their egos and, and feuding nature that will give them both attention, and yet they still scrap with each other. The structure of the miniseries is also interesting. There's a framing device of a documentary about the making of Baby Jane within the fictional show we are watching about Baby Jane, in which other great actresses of a certain age, including in the first episode, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Kathy Bates, play other grand dame actresses of that era, describing their understanding of their relationship and fight between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Oh, I hated that device, too. But it, but what it adds up to is, like, you feel that by the end of this miniseries, Ryan Murphy will have given a part to, like, every actress over 50 in Hollywood, like, that ever was amounted to anything. For 15 seconds. For 15 seconds. But there's, there is a funny... If It's interesting to think about receiving this project as, like, as Ryan Murphy's, like, sixth concurrent project. He's one of the most powerful and significant creators in television right now. And, like, more power to him for creating roles big or small for this kind of woman and for being interested in this kind of story. I mean, I don't doubt the sincerity of his interest or his understanding of of the fact that there might be an audience for it. Um, so all of that seemed to me to the good. But I agree that there's something just like a little bit inert about all of it. And even the initial framing device with Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Olivia de Havilland, you know, sort of says in this incredibly mannered way, like, feuds aren't about anger. <laughs> They're about pain. They're about pain. <laughs> and then the whole thing starts. And you're just like, I get it's like a little on the nose for kicking this whole thing off. Like, how about starting in the in the world or something? That's why I couldn't stand that framing device with the with the grand um, actresses weighing in, even though it was really fun to see. I mean, Kathy Bates as Joan Blondell, the older Joan Blondell. That's great casting. They had really fun costumes on. I think that part is supposed to be in 1978, we're told at one point, the interview part, whereas the movie, the actual movie that Crawford and Davis are starring in together, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, is in the early 60s. I think it came out in 1962. So all of that placement and the, the perfect furniture and the costuming, I mean, I guess all of that stuff is fun, but it just takes me back again to 
fun adjacent. I mean, what it really sounded like to me ultimately when it came down to the words that they were speaking was that they were delivering exposition, emotional exposition, right? As you just explained, it's about pain so that we know how to feel about the scene to come. And so to me, there was no sense of freedom or exploration. Granted, I've only seen the pilot, but I just felt like I was trapped in a hothouse with all of these, I don't know, with all of these kind of camp obsessives who weren't allowing for any freedom of play. Even that scene we heard, even the clip we heard where Joan Crawford is so thrilled that Betty Davis says directly to her that she thinks she's a good actress, was set, you know, it's like Jessica Lange can act. We can see that's how she feels in that scene. But there's a prefatory scene, I think like immediately before that scene, where Joan Crawford is speaking with her consort or friend the night before and going on and on and on about how much she hates Betty Davis. And she just, you know, it winds around and this and that. And she's griping about this and griping about that. And then at the end, she says to her consort friend, I just wish she would respect me. And then the next scene is like, you respect me? Like, it's just all a little leaden. It's a little bit of a clunk on the head. Um, I dislike the uh, framing device uh, intensely. It just doesn't seem to work on any level. But um, the rest of it kind of hooked me, I have to admit. Um, well, what about Lang and Sarandon? I mean, who are themselves these, you know, kind of huge Gorgon-like figures? And I don't mean Gorgon in a hideous, horrifying sense, but they've been around. But it's an, in its other sense? <laughs> One of those, those charming, delicate Gorgons. <laughs> well, I mean, Jessica Lange plays a kind of monster now in American Horror Story, right? Mm-hmm. Susan Susan Sarandon, you might argue, has become a political monster who's helped to ruin all of our lives. But I tried to keep that bitterness out of watching. But what did you think of just their casting and their performances as those those two women? Well, let me back into that um, answer a little bit. I, what I, here's what I like about the, the, um, the show is that, you know, I think it seems to me to get something right about being past your prime as an actor and a woman in Hollywood. Uh, generically, um, as an actor, you've 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 gone from just being someone who performs to being a, a kind of consistent personality from movie to movie, which is upon which your stardom is built. And then that hardens, and then it calcifies, and then it becomes a kind of cliche. What do you do with that? And in this instance, what they do with it is they turn it into kind of horror camp quite successfully. Um, and and watching that happen, it seems to me, is a, 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 you know, a pretty perceptive way of looking at how someone is both made and undone by this persona that they've crafted over decades. I mean, these, at least one of them, I think Crawford started in the silence. Uh, you know, their careers went all the way back, almost to the almost to the beginning of Hollywood, not quite, but but quite a bit far back. And what do you do with this thing kind of wrung around your neck, which is you, you know? Um, and, and the fact that they are portrayed, I think, as somewhat cunning about that. I mean, they picked this property, Crawford picks this property, this novel, kind of out of the slush pile, knowing what she's become. And so I don't find them sort of chess pieces in a morality tale about ageism and sexism in Hollywood at all, which I like about it. Um, and then the second thing is is the, are the gender politics. I mean, the director that they're working with, I think, is a really interesting character. One of my favorite scenes is him going to try to get the green light from Stanley Tucci, who plays a scenery-chewing Jack Warner. That, you know, it, it's it seems to understand what the early 60s were relative to the golden age of Hollywood because Warner's in some ways evoked in that scene explicitly as someone past his prime too because he's lost the autocratic control that studio heads had prior to um, the the Paramount lawsuit, which forced them basically to become um, uh, no longer vertically, vertically integrated monopolies. He used to own Betty Davis. 
you know, he used to own the talent under contract in a way, and he no longer does. It's very, it's perceptive about that, I think. And so I'm inclined to like that. I do think that there are great lines followed by total duds um, throughout, but, but there are enough really, really good ones and enough chewing of the scenery. I think their performances are okay. This is probably one of the hardest things to do as an actress. And, and, you know, and Dana, that's a tough choice to make because if you start showing the original archival clips and then fast forward to these women, it, that discontinuity is going to be very hard to get over. But but didn't you have a little bit of a sense that you, by choosing not to do that or by just, just by choosing to simply recreate those clips in a fake version, I almost felt like Ryan Murphy was trying to seal us off from the real mm-hmm. Hollywood. It was sort of like, don't right. worry about what really happened and to certainly don't go back and watch any Betty Davis or Joan Crawford movies. Just stay in my fun little bubble of, of catfighting. I don't know. It just it felt almost anti-cinephilic to me, this movie. Yeah. And, and and maybe that's just my own position as a cinephile. But if you think about Karina Longworth's episode on this very thing, on the making of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and, and you must remember this, her film history podcast, I just feel like it's so much more enriching and entertaining to listen to that than, to wa- than it would be to watch this six-hour recreation. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt. It's called Feud. It's on FX. It's a limited... Uh... Sarandon and Lang. Check it out and come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what you thought of it. All right, moving on. Well, we're used to being neurotic about food. It's been the great pastime along with maybe paranoia about real estate uh, of the past uh, 20, 30 years or so. But all things must exhaust themselves. And now our banal habit of making symbolism out of our banal habits has turned to sleep, that thing beyond which we strangely cannot evolve. Are you a night owl or a Ben Franklin? Or are you one of those knowledge economy super predators able to survive on four hours a night? What does your sleep tell us about you? If anything, Julia Turner. What does my sleep tell you about anything? Nothing yeah. except for that I'm a mother of twins, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, and we should say that the occasion for this conversation, there was an article in Vox that went viral that made the case last week for going to bed at 2.30 a.m. Um, without, I should note, mentioning the potential existence of children in anyone's life rather absurdly <laughs> in my view. Um, and, you know, Ariana Huffington's new post-HuffPo venture is all about teaching us all to sleep better. There is, I mean, there's probably always been a sleep moment, but there certainly is a current sleep moment. Something about the very rich lady who didn't pay her writers suddenly deciding that it's all about going off to rest and sleep is just so, so slappable in itself. <laughs> <laughs> Feud, Dana Stevens and Ariana Huffington. <laughs> oh, bring it on. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm curious to, I mean, I, you know, I read the piece about night owls that went viral and was like, yeah, I remember how great it was to be a night owl when I had the luxury of being a night owl because I didn't have fucking children who woke me up at seven in the morning. It's beautiful. You're, you, it's your own lifetime in the words of Orwell. No, nobody can impinge upon you with their demands and desires. Everyone else is gone and their thoughts quiet down and your thoughts can expand and float and explore. Um, the bragging on the half of the behalf of the night owls just got so intense in that article. Didn't it get to the point of saying night owls are better lovers, basically, <laughs> bumper sticker style? <laughs> um, and the lines at Kroger's are so short. I mean, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd go grocery shopping at 1 a.m. again if I didn't have uh, have have my morning duties. I mean, I think you can hear in my tone uh, my what might sound, what the author of that article might suggest sounds like shaming the night owls for their lack of industriousness or their lack of 
ability to reckon with the requisites of grown-up life, which is to get up early and do your fucking job. And I don't feel that way at all. I think for I think one of the benefits of a more flexible workforce and economy is like, yeah, great. If you have a life that allows you to adopt hours that suit your circadian rhythms, go ahead and adopt them. Um, I'm not sure that like delayed sleeper rights is the direction that we need to, <laughs> that we most need to urgently press as a success, as a society um but yeah i don't know i mean i you guys are surely you're a night owl dana you seem you have the, oh yeah 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 i'm an incorrigible night owl and in fact over 10 years now of having a child has not cured me of it. So, I mean, I read a lot of this this prep with interest, although I'm kind of familiar with all this stuff about melatonin and blue light emitting rays and all of these things, because I've tried many, many times to change myself into more of a morning person, and it's never worked. So what happens? What happens is that either I'm tired all the time and get so cranky about it that I once again afresh start on a reform program or I try to go to bed by 11 or so. Or I've actually worked something out recently where because I never seemed to be able to get my daughter to school on time and we got a note from the school saying she had too many tardies, we just decided that I was not morning person enough to take her to school. So lately what I've been doing is go to bed when I naturally want to go to bed, which unfortunately is usually between one and two sometimes, and uh, then wake up to help get her ready for school. And after they get out the door, jump back in bed with the dog and take maybe another hour nap or something. But it's not really an ongoing plan, and I'm not really adequately slept most of the time. Wow. Um, well, I, I see two elements to this sleep uh, vogue, uh, the vogue of talking about and thinking about sleep. One, one is to analogize back to food again is sort of the, the, the diet aspect and the taste aspect, right? So when you think about food, you can obsess over whether you're eating the right thing to honor you know, your biology or maximize it. Um, uh, that's diet. And then there's the question of what you eat as a kind of mode of social ostentation, like is your taste good taste, high, high, high taste, refined taste, or not. And similarly with sleep, I mean, there's what ought you do in order to, you know, in order to live within the be, live best within the confines of your, you know, evolutionary inheritance. Uh, and then this, the, the second aspect, which is what does my sleep habit sort of say about me as a person? Um, and some people are quite ostentatious about their sleep. Some people brag about, I mean, you know, quite a number of type A famous people brag about only needing four hours a night as one way of reminding us that they eat people like us for lunch, uh, you know, every day. For me personally, the one single most important sleep fact of my life is at some point, and for me, it just happens to be the morning, being awake when everyone else is asleep. Um, do you remember that segment we did a couple years ago about the habits of uh, geniuses? And the thing that really stuck with me is that from Mozart to Einstein to you name it, they all emphasized whether it was in the middle of the night, very early in the morning or very late at night, almost all of them said that they needed to be awake when humanity was asleep. And I think there is something to that. So my completely fucked up idiosyncratic sleep habit is that I often go to bed as early as eight o'clock at night in order to wake up as early as 3.30 or four in the morning and have a full two to two and a half hours awake when everyone else in my household is asleep because that's that's the only time I can really... Um, really have that. Can I tell you guys the most remarkable sleep fact I've learned in the last five years or so? Gabriel Roth, our dear colleague and sometime gabber, uh, wrote The Myth That We Need Eight Hours of Sleep a Night and described the historian A. Roger Eckerch 
who uncovered a pattern of references to first sleep and second sleep or morning sleep in sources from Homer and Plutarch to John Locke. Until the spread of artificial light in the 18th and 19th centuries, it turns out, our ancestors slept in two shifts of roughly four hours each with a period of wakefulness in between. That interval was a peaceful time, a time for contemplation and reflection and maybe copulation. Usually people would retire between 9 and 10 o'clock only to stir past midnight to smoke a pipe, brew a tub of ale, or even converse with a neighbor, Eckert wrote. Others remained in bed to pray or make love. So, I, I mean, what's and also we ought to acknowledge that that a fully half of the world still lives like this, right? I mean, the the um, the siesta is still a huge part uh, of life, and that's the absolutely the concept is that dinner is eaten at ten o'clock at night or midnight. Even uh, people go to sleep for four hours. They get up very early. They you know work and then. There's a four-hour break and nap uh, in the middle of the day. I mean, it's disappearing even in Latin America and Spain. But it it was a, a common a common uh, sleep wake pattern. All right. Well, uh, I think despite the fatuousness of the uh, sleep industry, it's probably good that we think about sleep more than less. We need it. We mm-hmm. should make time for it. We should accommodate people's varying schedules where we can. And I will say that one thing that is probably true in this recent upcropping of obsession with sleep is that the Internet is affecting our sleep in a big way, you know, and the fact that people have this kind of 24-hour box of wakefulness to stare at has probably mm-hmm. made a huge yeah. inroad into people's I bad sleep I think that's patterns. complete bullshit. <laughs> you don't believe in the blue light glowing? No. <laughs> There's always been shit to think about. I think that's well, so it's bogus. More, it's more about what part of your brain is activated when you look at the screen. But. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure the MRIs show us the activity. Mm, watch out for that activity. <laughs> All of that shit is complete cockamamie. <laughs> it's you who needs to feud with Ariana. Let's get the two of you together. <laughs> Are you trying to hide your silicate nature from us again? I think of you when you sleep as sort of recharging like an EV car. <laughs> <laughs> she gets into her pod. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, I won't go there. Um, uh, all right. Well, tell us how you sleep. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest. I'm sure it, there are as many weird idiosyncrasies as there are listeners to the show. So uh, share with us. All right, moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dan... Well, my endorsement this week is in honor of Robert Osborne, the great uh, host of TCM Turn to Classic Movies, who died yesterday, very sadly, and uh, and made me think about TCM and just what a huge part of my life it is and how the only reason I hold on to cable, essentially, because almost everything else is available in other ways, is TCM. Um, and uh, so in honor of Robert Osborne, I'm going to endorse Filmstruck, which is a new streaming service. It's been around for a few months now, but it's starting to expand to all kinds of different platforms. That's a combination of Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection. Essentially, I think the hole that needed to be filled in streaming services, which is something that I've written about before on Slate, was is the the classic movie hole. And uh, and places like Netflix that base their rentals on algorithms and what people want to rent are naturally not going to specialize in obscure, hard to find foreign movies or or classic movies. But uh, but TCM and Criterion have gotten together and created this streaming service, Filmstruck, where even, Stephen, if you're someone like you, who I think you've done the cable cutting, right? You don't have cable mm-hmm. at home anymore. I'm a cord, cord cutter, yeah. But, but you still watch things online or through various streaming means, right? Absolutely. And I've been eyeing Filmstruck 
lustily for a while now and and you yeah filmstruck me- looks incredible and i have to say i myself have not subscribed to it yet for the simple reason that it doesn't have a, a roku application it's going to develop that sometime this year but since that's how i stream movies into my tv and i don't like watching movies on the computer for the moment i'm not a filmstruck member but i'm anxiously awaiting their roku release so if you want to help support tcm even if you don't have cable and do right by the memory of robert osborne and all the incredible programmers at that channel who really to me are kind of keeping alive like the Cinematech American, if you want to call it that, um, subscribe to Filmstruck. You can go to filmstruck.com and read about uh, how to subscribe. You can get a 14-day free trial. This is not me doing an ad for it, just looking at their site. And uh, and you can discover whether you have a means of streaming it that you would want to watch it with. Um, so yes, filmstruck.com and RIP Robert Osborne. Here, here. Um, Julia, what do you have? Uh, This will be another of those endorsements where I uh, aver that I have tried a previous endorsement by Laura Miller and pronounced that I also liked it, which any smart listener of the show (laughs) would just take Laura Miller's word for it. So this is kind of like a extraneous, vestigial, useless endorsement. However, I recently read the book In the Woods by Tana French, who is an Irish writer of thrillers, who is really a wonderful wordsmith and creator of characters. And uh, my understanding is that she's done a set of books all set in Ireland that have sort of overlapping worlds and characters, but are not do not share one single protagonist. So it's kind of an unusual way to do a series of mystery books. Um, and the mysteries are as much about human nature and its frustrating stubbornness as about the actual crimes they're solving, at least if the first installment is any guide. But um, Laura Miller recommended a book and her recommendation was worthwhile. That's the headline news <laughs> from from my endorsement. Book critic recommends good book. Yes. Uh, if you're looking, I, I've been finding um, that I really want to read kind of plotty stuff, just uh, just compelling page-turny stuff to, to uh, remove my mind from the visitations of the world before bedtime. So just nice, some nice Irish child murders really does the trick. <laughs> <laughs> Um, fantastic. Uh, that, I love that that doubles as a Laura Miller, uh, in, an endorsement of Laura Miller as well. Um, all right. Well, I'm just going to be stay on topic here um, uh, with almost crushing literality. And uh, I'm going to endorse uh, Orwell's nonfiction, um, you know, for, for, for all the people out there who are the, you know, sort of photographic negative of, of me when it comes to Orwell and have read Animal Farm. 1984 and admired them, but really haven't read the nonfiction. You know, Amish the Catalonian Road to Wigan Pier are probably the two greatest works of literary journalistic nonfiction ever written. They hold up today. Um, they're both kind of archetypal, just as 1984 is in a weird way. I mean, Amish the Catalonian is the archetypal book of a, you know, ordinary man going off to war and writing vividly about the experience of, of fighting in a war. Uh, Orwell took a bullet to the neck and almost died. Uh, he put his beliefs, he put his life on the line for his beliefs. And then the second one is really very much a kind of template for all all nonfiction in this mode that came after it, which is he essentially went to go live among the coal miners of Northern England. Um, he acknowledges up front that, that, that the lifeblood of a modern uh, capitalistic society is the coal that keeps the whole thing running and he goes vividly into what coal means to the English economy and um, what a kind of um, horrific Dante and task it is to extract it from the bowels of the earth. It's an incredible piece of reportage. Plus all of the 
many essays, including Shooting an Elephant Inside the Whale, Politics in the English Language. I mean, you have to read these. And then very quickly, to expand the endorsement a little bit, you know, current turn of historical events have, have turned people to Orwell in 1984, now a huge bestseller as we described, but also oddly enough, now a bestseller is my old mentor's book, Achieving Our Country by Richard Wordy. Interestingly enough, he wrote about Orwell in one of his two masterpieces, a book called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. And he took head on a very difficult issue, which is the relationship between a supposedly more sophisticated notion of what counts as true, which people sometimes shorthand as postmodernism, and Orwell's absolutely unshakable faith that the true was somehow independent of us um, and one needed only to describe it in order to achieve a form of moral honesty. And how do you square these two versions of how we know what we know and what telling the truth is with one another? And that was a huge challenge for Rorty because his philosoph- he's most associated with this philosophical position that the truth is what other people let you get away with saying. Um, and so Orwell presented this challenge to him. And I think he had been challenged with Orwell and with the kind of uh, you know, moral of 1984 many times um, and decided to take it head on. And that's a particularly brilliant chapter. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Julia, thank you. Thanks, Steve. I also want to give one shout out and additional thank you to a very cute note we got from the Modern Art Gallery of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, they sent us a nice brown paper envelope to the Slate Culture Gab Fest adorned with a rainbow heart and a Saravon stamp. And in it, is a little note that says, we love listening to you every week. Thanks for making our cultural lives so full and fun. Heart, Libby and Joe, modern art. How cute. Thanks, Thanks Libby so and Joe. Thanks, Modern Art Gallery of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. What a what a treat. Getting an actual paper love note is best. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Our theme comes courtesy of the wonderful composer Nick Bertel. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. The old hag is sleeping. Now old hag stay sleeping. If you never wake up, it's heaven as it were. Widower, widower.